Welcome to the Grace at a Glance podcast from Grace Church of Linnets and Grace Creative. We are a Jesus church where the gospel is central, where we love Jesus, build people, and lead revival. Thanks for joining us. today and good morning to all of you who are watching uh, online this morning. Sorry, I couldn't hear myself. I need to make sure my microphone pack was on. <laughs> You're good. If you have a Bible or Bible app, please open to Proverbs chapter 3 verses 5 and 6. We're going to be looking at Proverbs 3, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10. So we're going to be looking at that passage of scripture. Uh, if you do not have a Bible or Bible app, that's okay. In the bumper video that you just saw was Proverbs 3 chapter 5 and 6. And uh, we are in a four-week series called Trust. This is the second week where we're doing a deep dive into that particular part of Scripture. You know, about a hundred years ago, in a small village in Eastern Europe, there was a man named Samuel. And Samuel was the wisest man in the entire town. If you had a problem with finance or a problem with relationships or a problem with your family dynamics or a problem with medical issues, you would go see Samuel. Years and years and years of his wisdom and his brilliance and his skill built up a significant reputation for him. And it seemed like no matter what he did, he was always successful in solving the problem or offering advice or something else. Well, one day a traveling circus came to town and the highlight of the circus show was a tightrope walking experience. And so all the village crowded into the circus tent, and they all watched this death-defying act on the tightrope. And as the man was in the middle of the rope, Samuel stood up and exclaimed to everyone around, I can do that too. And everybody sort of like started whispering to each other, like, there's, there's no way. I mean, like, we know he's really good at everything, but could he really do that? And then Samuel told everybody who was watching, yeah, it's really pretty easy. It's all about focus and balance. And I am certain that if you come back here tomorrow night, I can walk the tightrope. Don't be so amazed with that man. So the man gets down off the rope. The crowd goes home. The whole next day, Samuel begins to think through and study the focus and the balance necessary to get up and walk across the tightrope. Well, that night, the entire audience gathered together, and they're all waiting and watching and They can't wait to see Samuel pull off something amazing because this guy is known for getting it right every single time, usually the first time. And so Samuel begins to climb the the rungs to the top of the platform. When he gets to the top of the platform, the entire audience goes quiet. And he begins to step out, first with his right foot. And the crowd went, (gasps) and then with his left foot. And they all went, ah, And then he took his third step, and he fell 150 feet to his death. Sad story, huh? And in that moment, it was that Samuel taught the crowd his final lesson. The final piece of wisdom is that pride comes before the fall. You probably have heard that phrase before. There's a little story to illustrate what that looks like. What we're going to learn today in Proverbs chapter 3, 5, and 6, and really through 7 through 10, is that pride has a way of tricking our wisdom 
into believing we are capable of more than what we really are capable of doing. Pride has a way of obstructing our ability to actually embrace godly wisdom in our life. And that's really what Proverbs 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10 are actually all about. So we're going to look at three things today. First one is this. Pride obstructs our ability to choose godly wisdom. Now there are two kinds of wisdom in the world. There is human wisdom and there is godly wisdom. Human wisdom is characterized by human understanding. That means that all of our knowledge and reasoning that we possess, all of it based on our worldly values, we, we pull it together and we try to make the best right choice we can given the circumstances in front of us. But there's some things that you need to understand about human wisdom. Because people are flawed, and you know the phrase, nobody's perfect, As a Christian, we say that's because all of us are filled with sin. We're sinful people. Because we're sinful people and nobody's perfect, no matter how much collective wisdom we have, that wisdom is going to be flawed. It's going to be limited because it's generated and created by people who are flawed and who are limited. And so what happens is this. Actually, the Apostle Paul, when he takes a look at the wisdom of humanity, he says this about the wisdom of the world. For the wisdom of the world is foolishness in God's sight. It's foolishness because at its core, it's going to be limited and flawed, no matter how good or right the advice is that you're going to get. So that's 1 Corinthians 3.19. The wisdom of the world is foolishness in God's sight. One of the primary characteristics of human wisdom, no matter how good it is, is that ultimately human wisdom is driven by a self centered agenda. So why do we need this wisdom? Why do we need this information? We need it so that we can make a decision that informs how to best do something for us personally. And it's very difficult to separate pride and self-centeredness from human wisdom because those two things play together. Godly wisdom is a little bit different. Divine wisdom, on the other hand, it comes from God. In other words, There is nothing that humanity can do in all of its collective knowledge to generate the same kind of wisdom because it has to be given to us from an outside source. If limited and flawed people create limited and flawed wisdom, the only way to get godly, divine, perfect wisdom is that somebody who is perfect and godly and divine must give it to you. That's why we call it godly wisdom. It comes from an outside source. In our case, all of godly wisdom that we are aware of comes from two sources for the Christian. First and foremost, it comes from God's revealed word, which is the scriptures, because that's God's wisdom to humanity. The second place it comes from is from the Holy Spirit, because God has given you the Holy Spirit to indwell in you and to teach you concerning all things as it relates to him. So we have this godly wisdom. And here's how uh, James, the brother of Jesus, describes godly wisdom in James chapter 3, verse 17. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is, first of all, pure. Then it's peace-loving. It's considerate. It is submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. So if you have human wisdom, which at its core is going to be self-centered and driven to benefit you, the individual, God's wisdom is impartial. It has no agenda. He simply gives it to you because he loves you, but when you apply it to your life, it is beneficial to you. It is impartial, it is sincere, it is full of good fruit when you actually apply it. Now, human wisdom, 
because we are people and we generate this wisdom, it always seems right to us. Human wisdom always seems right to us. Now, that's crazy to me when I think about it logically. Because if you examine your life, just examine your life, okay? Look back on however many years you have lived and count up the number of times you've received outside counsel or you've generated what you thought was a really good idea and you put it into action and it totally failed you. In my life, I can think of a number of ways in which my human wisdom, which I really believed in and trusted, has let me down in one way or another. And yet, for whatever reason, I still generate these things. I'm like, oh, that's pretty smart. That's pretty good. I should, I should definitely do that. Or I receive outside counsel from people like, oh, yeah, that's brilliant. I should definitely do that. And yet that human wisdom I've oftentimes found to be, at, at its best, somewhat beneficial. But at its worst, human wisdom is completely disastrous for my life and for the lives of the people that I'm in relationship with. But godly wisdom, even though uh, it, it has, when it comes from an outside source, godly wisdom will always lead you to the most right spiritual and natural outcomes. So what do we mean by spiritual? Of course it's, it's godly wisdom, so it's going to have spiritual benefit. But it actually has the most natural right outcomes for your human relationships. So in all of your business practices, when you apply godly wisdom, it actually has the most right natural outcome for your business. In all relationships, when you apply godly wisdom, it actually has the most, natural, the most right natural outcome for your relationships. This is the way godly wisdom works. It's good for you spiritually, but more than that, it's also good for you in terms of your day-to-day living existence. The difficulty between godly wisdom and human wisdom, why we have a hard time choosing it, is because usually godly wisdom makes no human sense. When you are given godly wisdom, because it comes from an outside source, it can be really complex and difficult to want to submit to it and to apply it because nobody else thinks this way. Nobody else is doing what godly wisdom is asking you to do. Which is why this sermon series is called Trust. Because trust is what allows you to apply godly wisdom to your life. Without trust, you will ignore all the things that God wants for you. And you will say, eh, it's really not for me. Maybe it's not for this day and age. But I'm going to push it off because I'm not sure that that wisdom is going to have the outcome I want. Because I kind of want the outcome that I'm getting currently. So in order to trust God, in order to trust the godly wisdom you receive, you have to first and foremost step into a position of humility. You see, our pride obstructs our ability to choose godly wisdom. It gets in the way. It tells us that we know better or we think better or we're we're getting the results that we want currently. So why would I change? Why, Why would I want to do something different? Well, when you have a humble perspective and we submit to godly wisdom, we recognize that just maybe God might know more than you do concerning a specific topic. Now, I know it sounds interesting for the Christian to say uh, or to admit that God knows more than they do because it should be easy to do that, right? It's easy to say, yes, God is God and I am not, and God knows more than I do. It's a whole lot harder to live your life that way because in your day-to-day practices and relationships and in the world in which you live, when you leave these walls and you go to your workplaces and your schools and your environments, you're surrounded in a world filled with human wisdom. And what everybody talks about is their own human experience. And well, here's what I did, and here's what happened, and here's what you should do, and here's what you can get out of it, blah, blah, blah. All that stuff happens out there. So when you live life practically, and you're organizing your family, you're organizing your behaviors, you're organizing your work, 
we are immersed with worldly wisdom, and we oftentimes arrange it according to that wisdom, not necessarily godly wisdom. So it's a lot, a lot easier to say that God knows more than us, a whole lot harder to actually live it out. Which is why the first part of wisdom is actually found in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. I'm going to read it for you again. It says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your paths straight. So today we're really going to focus on this idea of not leaning on your own understanding. And here's what that means. When you don't lean on your own understanding, it begins with this foundational principle. You acknowledge that God is always right. You have to acknowledge that God is always right. That's what it means to not lean on your own understanding. And if you want to see what a humble heart looks like, and you might not be a humble person. I mean, I'm not a humble person all the time. But humility in action. Here's what humility in action looks like. Humility in action is trusting God's instruction over your own understanding of how things should work. Humility in action is trusting God's instruction over your own understanding of how things should actually work. Now, the reason that is so hard is because we live in a world where people don't do that. And people don't think this way. Nobody outside of the church is going to tell you that God is always right and that you need to trust in everything he says to the word and live your life according to those principles. No one's going to do that. And I'll tell you why no one's going to do that. Because outside of these walls, if there's people who are unbelievers, who have no desire to follow after God, there's two truths about that person's heart and their condition in life. The first one is this. All people without Jesus want to reject God. They want to reject their creator. Romans chapter 1 tells us this, that people suppress the truth, where they suppress wisdom, they they, they suppress God's revealed ways with unrighteousness. It means with sin or with decisions that help them feel more comfortable with the world around them. They embrace these things and they look at godly wisdom, godly truth, and they say, forget it, I don't want anything to do with it, I'm going to push it down because really I don't want anything to do with God. Because the sinful heart does not want anything to do with their creator. Which is why people who are without Christ, by default, will choose unrighteousness. It's not because they actually think that righteousness is, 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 is they, I mean, they can call sin, sin. They know what it is. But they embrace it for themselves simply because they want nothing to do with the God who created them. People want to reject God. And so if you are a believer in Jesus... And you are submitted to godly wisdom, which means you take the whole counsel of God's word and you actually apply it to your daily living. And you begin to experience the benefit of godly wisdom. Because what does James tell us? Godly wisdom does have good fruit. All of God's wisdom has good fruit. So when it starts to produce benefit in your life, so your relationships are succeeding, your businesses are thriving, your family is becoming more whole. When you apply godly wisdom and restoration and prosperity then start happening inside your life because of who God is and what his wisdom says it will do, people who see that in your life will reject you. But they're not really rejecting you so much. They're rejecting God because they're seeing truth lived out in your life, that godly wisdom does produce many good benefits inside of somebody's life, and they see it and they hate you for it. Because you're willing to submit to God when they are not. The second part of why people will reject you is this. People are actually content with their own foolishness. 
funny to say that out loud, but it's true. Proverbs 1, 32, 33 says this. Fools die because they refuse to follow wisdom. They are content to follow their foolish ways, and that will destroy them. People are content in their own foolishness. People without Jesus, people who, who have never heard the gospel, people who even have heard the gospel rejected, they're quite happy to live the life that's giving them the results that they have because it comforts their flesh, even if it creates all kinds of complications in other aspects of their life. They might have a really complicated marriage or a really complicated relationship with their family or really complicated business practices or whatever it might be. Things can be so screwed up in every facet of their life, and they'll keep choosing the same thing because it feels good for their bodies. It feels good for their mind in the moment, regardless of the consequences. Now, I don't know how you grew up or what kind of friends you had. Uh, I ran with a crowd that was not necessarily the most God-honoring people. Uh, And they kind of had a damn the consequences mentality. I don't know if you know people like that in your life, but they're like, you know what? I don't care what it is. I'm going after it 100%, and whatever happens, happens. And as a result, they have all these things in their life that are really pretty miserable and terrible, but in the moment... Hey, it was pretty good while it lasted, wasn't it? That's a terrible and stupid way to live. But that was the world in which I was surrounded by as a young man. And I saw, even currently now to this day, where many of the people in my life who are my close friends, who've seen God's work and transformation in my life, still choose to reject godly wisdom because even though they're currently in suffering and frustration, they like what they like and they don't want to change. Now, for you as a Christian... And this is where it gets really dangerous, because it's not just an unbelieving world who doesn't apply godly wisdom. If you are a follower of Jesus, one of the most dangerous things we can do is accept the saving grace of Jesus, but reject the wisdom of God that leads to righteousness. And there's a lot of us that do it on a regular basis, including myself. There are things in the scriptures that we know are to be true, And we are definitely followers of Jesus. We're definitely saved by grace. And and he has regenerated us, and he he lives in us, and we've got the Holy Spirit, and he guides us. And yet we come across certain things in the Bible, and we say, maybe tomorrow. I'm just not sure I want to do that right now in my life. And there's a lot of times, as followers of Jesus, where you're going to have this experience. You're going to be reading God's Word. Or you're going to be listening to a message or a sermon. Or you're going to be in a conversation with another follower of Christ. And they're going to say something that is godly wisdom. And your flesh is going to want to reject it. It's going to say, I just don't want to do that right now. Uh, and so either your flesh will rage against it. Or you're just like apathetic where you don't really want to do it. Or you start lacking faith that application will actually bring about transformation. Or there's even some things you'll come across in the Bible. And you'll simply say... That is outdated and doesn't apply to my society or to me today. That's, that's bad information for today's living. When that happens, here's why your flesh is going to reject it and push against it. You ready? Because just like the unbelieving world, you and I too want to be content in our foolishness. We would actually rather have the consequences of our foolishness for this simple momentary gratification of whatever that decision might actually bring We are content to lean on our own understanding. I had a a farmer friend of mine. We were talking one time about this passage of Scripture. Uh, And, you know, farmers are good for sayings. I don't know if you know many farmers, but, like, they always got a saying about something. Uh, And he said, Dan, you know what leaning on your your own understanding is like? 
He said it's like leaning on a shallow fence post in soft soil. It looks sturdy, but it's going to fall over real fast. But that's the problem with pride. Pride obstructs our ability to choose godly wisdom. We'd rather lean on our own understanding for the momentary comforts that we have or the momentary pleasures that we seek than apply godly wisdom to our life because the application of godly wisdom may seem incredibly hard and difficult, but it comes with significant benefit. Good fruit, it's impartial from God, is for your benefit to apply and for you to experience. Second thing about pride as it comes to uh, applying godly wisdom to our life is that pride fosters an inflated sense of wisdom. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 7 says this, Don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. And that's wrong. Proverbs 3, 8. It should be Proverbs 3, 7. And in your Bible it's right, I promise. Proverbs 3, 7 says, Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. Uh, one thing's true about all people. And I, at some point in time in somebody's life, they're going to think they're really pretty smart. It doesn't matter if you have high self-esteem or low self-esteem. You're going to find something in somebody's life where they actually believe, you know what, I'm actually pretty smart about this particular thing. And they probably had some degree of human success in that area. And what I have learned is that when you have human success in one area of your life, it can lead you to believe that wisdom can come across in all areas of your life. That's the story of Samuel that we read earlier today, is that he believed wisdom transcended into every category. But that's also the same story of King Solomon, the very man who authored this proverb. If you do not know the story of King Solomon, in 1 Kings chapter 3, you learn that King Solomon became king of Israel as a very young man. And God appeared to Solomon in a vision, and God told uh, Solomon, he said, "'Ask for anything you want, Solomon.'" and I will give it to you. Solomon could have asked for money. He could have asked for uh, prosperity. He could have asked for the greatest army. He could have asked for anything to rule a kingdom. But do you know what he asked for? He asked for wisdom. And because Solomon asked for wisdom, God then decreed that there will be, there will be no, I'm sorry, those lights caught me off guard. There will be no one who's ever lived in history past or in history future, as wise as Solomon. And so God gave him this gift of wisdom, and God also made him prosperous beyond belief, and Solomon was exceedingly wealthy. Solomon, it's like anything Solomon put his hand to had success. He was an incredible architect. He was an incredible warrior. He was an incredible politician. The man was a business, uh, a business maniac. He was incredibly wealthy. He built the nation of Israel into one of the strongest nations the world had ever seen at that time during his Rain. Now, last week I gave a definition of wisdom. I'm going to give it again. Wisdom is knowing the difference between what is right and wrong and then choosing to do what is right. It's really the choosing to do what is right portion that makes you wise or unwise. Now, unfortunately for Solomon, even though he was the wisest man who's ever lived and ever will have lived, because he was a human being and there was sin in his heart, sooner or later he was going to fail to choose what is right. Which means that Solomon, in all of his wisdom, somewhere along the way was going to make an unwise decision. Because even though he was the wisest man who's ever lived, he was not a perfect man. That man was Jesus. And so he's very wise, but he's still going to make some big, de uh, some big decision in his life that's going to be wrong. Now for Solomon's case, the one area of his life 
where he was unable to exercise wisdom was in the area of relationships with women. That sounds familiar. (laughs) But in his world, he actually made a significant mistake because he married 700 women. He married 700 women, all from different tribes and nations who all had royal birth. And he did it because the Bible tells us that he loved them, but also because he was a king and he was making official arrangements and political alliances and everything else. The problem with this is that in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 3, in Deuteronomy, if you don't know what that word means, Deuteronomy is the fourth book of the Bible, and Deuteronomy means the second law. So this is a law given to the nation of Israel by God, which means that this law is godly wisdom. So in this godly wisdom, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 3, God tells the people of Israel, Do not intermarry with the surrounding nations. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, because they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. That's the law, Deuteronomy 7.3. Now this is actually a secondary law. It's a law meant to help you fulfill the very first law of God given to all people, especially the nation of Israel, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. Exodus 20, verse 1 is the very first of the Ten Commandments. Some of you know it by heart, some of you don't know what it is, but here's what it says. You shall have no other gods before me. So in God's revealed will over time, in Exodus he says, you shall have no other gods before me, several years later to help the nation of Israel be obedient to that godly wisdom, he institutes a secondary or regulatory law which says in order to do this well, you should also not intermarry with foreign nations. Now here's how this works in your life, ready? Uh, Many of you are familiar with the Pennsylvania law. It was actually a campaign about 20 years ago, uh, but you still are familiar with it because you see it on signs. It says, click it or ticket. You guys know that? Click it or ticket, which means if you don't have a seatbelt on, you're going to get, uh, you're gonna get a ticket from a police officer. Now, it's a Pennsylvania state law. That's how we regulate it. But what you might not know is that there is a secondary law to help you fulfill the first law. Are there any police officers in here? Anybody? State trooper? Come on, Ken, raise your hand. <laughs> there we go. Okay. Thank you for your service, by the way. Here's the thing about law. You ready? There is another law that many of you don't know what it states, but it impacts your life on a regular basis. You ready? It's FMVSS. Yeah, wait, hey, I'm going to get this right. There's too many words numbers. FMVSS number 208. There we go. Here's what it states. Every vehicle manufacturer must install in their vehicle a really annoying buzzer that when you put your key in but don't have your seatbelt on makes a noise at you until you click your belt. So you have the prime law, which is you must click it or tick it, drive with your seatbelt on, and you have a regulatory law on the manufacturer to install these annoying buzzers that we all hate, but we have to put our seatbelt on as a reminder. Two laws working together to make sure that you make a wise decision. Now, why do people need help from the law to make a wise decision? Because left to our own devices, we would drive without seatbelts. Right? I mean, I don't know how many uh, statistics and data you need to read about the wisdom of wearing a seatbelt, but it is wise for you to put a seatbelt on. Unfortunately, in our own heart, we want to reject these laws. You can't tell me what to do at our own risk. And so these laws exist to help us fulfill the law. Same was true for the nation of Israel. This is a really important thing. You must not intermarry. You must not have your heart go away from God. But yet Solomon 
who is a king, somehow in his wisdom began to believe that he was smarter than the law. I don't know anybody that does this, right? But pride fosters this inflated sense of wisdom. In all of his areas of success, he believed that he didn't have to obey the laws that were meant for the common people because all of his advisors would tell him, the wise thing for you to do, King Solomon, is intermarry with all these people so that the nation of Israel will prosper and be aligned. That's what all of his advisors say. That's what everybody around him would tell him. That's what the common practice of the day was. And yet God specifically forbade it. But God, that doesn't make any sense. Why, why, why would I do It's political in nature, God. So I'm going to follow my human wisdom versus godly wisdom. And you know how 1 Kings ends? 1 Kings ends in like the most sad way as it relates to Solomon. Here's what it says about Solomon. Solomon loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. He loved the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Edomites, the Sidonians, and the Hittites. They were from the nations about which the Lord said you should not intermarry with them. Otherwise, their daughters will take their heart away from you or will take your heart away from God. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. And here's the saddest verse about Solomon's whole life. And his wives led him astray. The wisest man who's ever lived still became a great fool. And he had to suffer the consequences of his actions. In his life, it took his heart fully away from God. At the very end of his life, he started building all kinds of places to worship other deities other than the one true God. And the end result, the final consequence of this, actually happens 12 months after he died. Because here's what's true about our lack of wisdom. Sometimes when we follow human wisdom, we don't suffer the consequences right away. It can take years for those consequences to catch up to us. In Solomon's case, the final consequence came 12 months after his son was reigning over the nation of Israel, the most prosperous nation, the most strong nation, the mo- a nation everybody looked up to. And 12 months later, that nation was split in two because his boneheaded son, instead of being dedicated to God, was actually dedicated to other gods and as a result lost the whole kingdom. All because of one bad human decision to follow worldly wisdom other than godly wisdom. So when we look at this idea of be not wise in your own eyes, it's all about this concept. When the world around you is doing something or telling you that this is right and good, but yet Scripture has a different word on that issue, you will be tempted to follow human wisdom over divine wisdom. Let me tell you exactly where the church and where Christians in the United States have forsaken godly wisdom over the last 30 years. In God's written and revealed wisdom, which is the foundation of which all of Scripture is written on, God gives people significant wisdom on what He desires for you regarding your human sexuality. He has revealed to all of us through Scripture that marriage is between one man and one woman, It is a covenant that you make before God. In his godly wisdom, he decrees that you should not pursue sexual immorality of any kind. That you should not give in to your own perversions. Here's what I know about people. I am a man. There are men in this audience. There are women in this audience. You are sexual beings. 
And every single person in this room has sexual perversions. You can't tell me you don't because you do because you're a person. And yet godly wisdom tells us not to give into or pursue our sexual perversions of any kind. But the prevailing wisdom of the culture in which we live says that human sexuality is a spectrum. That the human sexual experience can be and should be anything you want it to be. Now, as a pastor of this church, uh, I want you to understand that this idea of human sexuality is not just a moral versus immoral issue. It is also a wisdom issue. It is a conversation around wisdom. Because in God's revealed will, he has said that it is wise for you as a person to maintain sexual purity in every aspect of your life. And he gives you this decree, and he also gives you this decree, but it comes with a promise. There's a promise that comes along with following godly wisdom. And that's Proverbs 3, verse 8. If you have your Bible, you can look down to it. Proverbs 3, 8 tells you this. When you fear the Lord and you shun evil, you shun all the human wisdom that embraces evil, and you, you put that aside, and you embrace godly wisdom, here's the promise. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. There's a real promise with shunning evil and pursuing after godly wisdom. It will nourish your body and bring health to your bones. Let me get this real specific and real practical for you in case you're wondering where I'm going. Do you know what the most common consequence of frequent sexual immorality is? A sexually transmitted infection. The most common consequence. Here's something you might not know, but you can go to the CDC website and look it up. Right now, 20% of Americans on any given day are walking around with an STI. That's a high number. That's one in five. So if you're a single person or you're somebody who's looking to hook up on Tinder and you're swiping through left and right and you're going, going through all the different people and you click on somebody, there's a one in five chance that after that hookup, you're walking away with a sexually transmitted infection. One in five. It's pretty high. Current stats and data from the CDC tell us that if you are under the age of 25 and you're a sexually active individual, you have a 50% chance of getting an STI before the age of 25. Those are pretty high numbers. Now, I don't want to get into a long debate and conversation on the nuances of sexually transmitted infections, but I will also tell you the other side of the data. The other side of the data tells us this. If you are an individual who has not had a sexual relationship and you marry somebody who has not had a sexual relationship and by no fault of your own, you, you both maintained uh, health and had no access or ability to be exposed to sexually transmitted infection, because there are other ways of getting it. But let's say neither of you get them, and you come together in a married, monogamous relationship. You can be married your entire life because people without sexually transmitted infections cannot magically create them. They don't just materialize out of nowhere. So a God-given perspective on marriage between one man and one woman with clear fidelity, where the sexual relationship is at its fullest inside of marriage, guarantees you a healthy human sexual experience free of any kind of STI. Now, over the last hundred years of human history, we can actually prove with secular data that godly wisdom in the area of human sexuality is actually healthier for your body, where human wisdom in the area of, of, human, of, of human sexuality is unhealthier. Even the best wisdom regarding human sexuality cannot compete with godly wisdom in keeping a person sexually healthy. But the reality of the culture in which you live is that there are many people who read the Bible 
and who read what God's revealed will and godly wisdom is on this, and they believe that the Bible is outdated and irrelevant regarding the human sexual experience. And oftentimes they'll tell you that God's word is hateful and harmful to people in the area of human sexuality. And all of the people who are saying that godly wisdom is hateful and harmful are willfully ignoring their own science and data about the damage it can do to a person's body when they engage in in licentious sexual behavior. It's like, man, Pastor Dan, you're giving us a long lecture about human sexuality. No. I want you to understand the practical outpouring of God's wisdom. Godly wisdom produces good fruit. Human wisdom at best can be helpful, but at worst is totally disastrous to your life. And if you believe in a false sense of pride that you know more than God does and you have success in certain areas of your life, and as a result you don't need to ignore this aspect, you are setting yourself up for significant hurt and harm the rest of your life. Last thing is this. Pride gives your human wisdom a false sense of control. I think there's probably many of you who in this uh, audience have heard this phrase. Money is power. You ever heard that phrase, money is power? Yeah, it's a pretty common phrase. And in a very real sense in the world we live in, money is power. Because with money, you have more power or you have more opportunity to control circumstances around you. And money and power go hand in hand, and power is the ability to control outcomes in life. Now, I have found that with certain people, not all people, but with certain people who are very wise and very intelligent in the areas of finance or business, if they make lots of decisions that lead them to great financial wealth, they begin to believe that they have a certain level of control over their life more than they actually do. And so they look at their bank accounts and they look at their power and their business relationships and they say, okay, with all of this, I can control favorable outcomes in my life. Now, here's what we're going to see, and this is a a long-standing principle. It's not just for money that people believe this. It's for any area in your life where you have repeated success. If you have consistent success in one area of your life, you you begin to believe that 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 element of success will give you the ability to control the outcomes of your life or control the environments and relationships in which you are in to a more favorable and positive outcome. So as a result, people will hoard their wealth or they will hoard their successes and they will leverage them for their own personal benefit and usually they cut other people out in the pursuit of leveraging what they have for a greater gain in their own life. When you have decisions and you make them again and again and they're really good decisions, you get a lot of success, people will tend to tell you, to keep pursuing the same things and use them to influence your life in a positive and profitable way. Here's what Proverbs 3, 9 through 10 tells us. Now, why why am I talking about wealth and money? Because these three stanzas are all really uh, related. Lean not on your own understanding. Be wise not in your own eyes. And then also Proverbs 3, 9 through 10 says this. It says, Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing. Your vats will brim over with new wine. Now, the Hebrew word for wealth in Proverbs 3.9 is actually the word sufficiency. And I want to make sure you understand that. It's your own sufficiency. So if your own sufficiency produces success, now that could be any kind of sufficiency that you may have, 
The way to make sure that that sufficiency does not give you a false sense of control in the world is to use that sufficiency to bless other people and give it right back to the Lord. So if we have sufficiencies that produce success or we have sufficiencies that produce wealth, we are to honor the Lord to make sure that we recognize that all of life's sufficiencies and wealth and provision comes from one person, from the Lord himself. Not from our own efforts, not from our own skills, not from our own wisdom. Because where did you get all those efforts and skills and wisdom if not from the one who created you? Yes, we can work on certain things, but the majority of who you are comes from the one who has knit you together in your mother's womb. So we honor the Lord by using the sufficiencies of our life to honor him and bless him. And usually that means we pour it out either back into the church or back to other people. Jesus says, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And he says that not because he wants you to give all your money to the church or to missions or something else, although certainly you should honor God with your money in those areas. He says that because there's a promise attached to the idea of honoring God with your sufficiencies and with your wealth. And the promise attached is this. Your barns will be overflowing and your vats will brim with new wine. I'm not trying to tell you that there is a, a health and wealth gospel here where like, if you follow Jesus, everything's fine. Follow Jesus, you'll be wealthy. That's not it. What I'm trying to help you understand here is that godly wisdom equals godly provision. Every single time. Godly wisdom equals godly provision. But our pride can make us want to hoard our sufficiencies and our wealth for ourselves, giving us a sense of control and power in the world. But you are actually nobody in the world, and neither am I. Your power and control is a false view of reality that your sufficiencies have built up inside of our minds. All of power and all of control rest in one man's hands, and that's Jesus. There's no power and control outside of him and his will. So we honor the Lord with all of our sufficiencies to keep ourselves from getting a prideful heart believing we are actually in control of our own lives. Now, why did I just talk about sex and money so closely together in the same sermon? Those are powerful topics. It's actually really simple. Human beings tend to allow sex and money to become the most prideful parts of their life. We live in a world that honors sexual conquests. Go out there and do whatever you want. That's pride. Go out there and be whoever you want. That's pride. Go out there and, and, and gain whatever you think you can gain. And again, it's all pride. When it comes to money, uh, what do people talk about? What do you do for a living? And they judge you immediately by your class of work. Well, that's pride. And these things have a way of getting into our hearts and keeping us from wanting to submit all of those parts of our lives over to God and to his godly wisdom in every single aspect. But if you are a follower of Jesus in this room, I am imploring with you to look to Jesus Christ as your example of what it means to humbly pour yourself out and submit to the will of God. Because Christ was generous with you in all of his sufficiency. Jesus was a perfect man who lived a perfect life and he was fully God and he was fully man. And yet listen to what the Apostle Paul says about him. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave, and he was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, 
He humbled himself in obedience to God. He died a criminal's death on the cross, and therefore God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all names, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Without a doubt, when Jesus was alive, human wisdom would have told him to not go to the cross. It would have told him to take up his arms and use his divinity and establish the kingdom now. But godly wisdom was on full display in the Garden of Gethsemane where the night before Jesus was crucified, he prayed to God the Father, not my will, but your will be done. Godly wisdom is about having the same prayer as Christ. Not my will, but your will be done in every single aspect of my life. That I would fully submit to godly wisdom that I would crucify my pride on the cross with Christ, that it would die there. I would humbly embrace the gospel that made me right with God because of none of my work did I become right with God, only through Christ's work. And so if Christ was willing to die and humble himself in the likeness of Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit, am I willing to identify the prideful parts of my heart and to crucify them with Christ so that he might be glorified, that I might be made whole? These are really the questions. Let's pray. Father God, I'm grateful uh, that you have given us more wisdom than we can actually comprehend in a human lifetime. And so, Father, as we look for ways to follow after you, as we look for ways to apply godly wisdom to our life, here is my prayer. I would pray that everyone in this room and everybody watching online that comes encounter with your word would have a deep heart of trust that they would recognize you as good, as perfect, and as loving, that you have the best plan involved for their spiritual and earthly existence. And that, Lord, you'd empower them through the Holy Spirit to have humble hearts, to come to the cross, to repent of their sin and repent of their pride, and seek diligently after you and all the fruits of your wisdom, God, that they might benefit this side of eternity and forever. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Hosting for this podcast has been brought to you by Anchor from Spotify. Our intro and outro song is Creative Mind by Ben Sound. From all of us here at Grace Church, thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.